Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. What would our world look like if all our current gendered expectations disappeared? And what needs to happen for this to be achieved? Jinghua Qian, Emeo Liotta Lu, and Sandy O'Sullivan imagine a world with no gender binary. Hosted by Dr. Eve Rees, recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this panel discussion on Beyond the Binary. My name is Eve Rees, and I'm going to be your moderator this afternoon. I'm a historian, I'm a writer, and I'm also a person who lives outside the gender binary. I'm trans and non-binary, and my pronouns are they and them. And it's my absolute pleasure to be here with you today at this sold-out event. Hello also to those of you watching at home on the live stream. Clearly, there's an enormous appetite to think and imagine gender in more creative and complex ways. First, I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathering today on stolen land. I live and work on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, but today we're coming together on unceded Gadigal land. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as any First Nations people here in the room. Gadigal sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I also want to acknowledge the richness and complexity of First Nations understandings of gender, which is something we'll be discussing further today. But first, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce our stunning panel. Um, as co-curator of this event, I worked with All About Women curator Chip Rowley to develop this group of speakers, and I honestly can't think of anyone really more qualified on this continent to talk about these themes. First, on my immediate left, we have Professor Sandy O'Sullivan. Sandy is a Wiradjuri, trans non-binary person, a creative practitioner, and professor in the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. They've been a researcher for over three decades and were recently awarded a prestigious Australian Research Council Future Fellowship for a project called Saving Lives, mapping the influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ creative artists. They're also currently working on a book called No Session, The Colonial Project of Gender. And many of you will know Sandy from Twitter, where they do incredible work explaining how, in their words, challenging gender binaries is anti-colonial work. Please welcome Sandy. Next, in the middle here, we have Jinghua Qian. Jinghua is a Shanghainese writer, critic, and storyteller living in the Kulin Nations, who has previously worked as head of news at Shanghai-based English-language media outlet Six Tone. Since returning to Australia in 2018, Jinghua has pursued a freelance career focusing on the arts, history, queerness, and China. Air work has appeared in places like Kill Your Darlings, Mianjin, Overland, The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, and many more. 
Jinghua is also a reporter and writer for ABC TV's China Tonight and produces podcasts, including The Wonderful Underfoot, which is a multimedia tours covering Fitzroy's underground history. Footscray. Footscray, sorry, Footscray. <laughs> I had written Footscray, verbal slip. Please welcome Jinghua. <laughs> And finally, uh, down the end, we have Amal Leota Lu. Amal is a Fafafine performance artist, poet, com community activist, originally from Samoa. In 2019, Amal was part of the cast of Gender Euphoria, an all trans and gender diverse production staged as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival. In 2020, she created the very first Queer Pacific event at Midsummer Festival in Melbourne and performed there in an event called Pacific Essence, Tales of a Migration Plantation. Amau is a leader in the Fafafine community and has been a powerful advocate for queer and trans identities beyond a narrow Western framework. Please welcome Amau. So the four of us are going to chat uh, for about 40 minutes and then we'll take questions from the audience. So we're here today <laughs> to imagine something really exciting, a world beyond the gender binary. And I think it's important to acknowledge that trans people like us rarely get invited to do this agenda setting work. When we're given a public platform, we're typically only asked about our bodies, our transition stories, our trauma. People often tend to be more interested in what's inside our pants than what's going on inside our head. But today is going to be different. We're going to focus on this big and bold idea of moving beyond the gender binary. But for the four of us, beyond the binary is kind of already a daily reality. It's something we just live. We're already challenging the idea that there's only two genders out there just by existing. However, you know, we're all doing that in different ways. Our genders are not the same. So I'd like to begin the conversation by asking each of you to briefly introduce your gender and the words you use to describe yourself to the audience. Sandy, would you like to go first? Yeah, so I think before I say anything, I would always say that I'm Rajri. Um, and I think then it becomes trans non-binary. Mm. I know we said we all use different. Yeah. yeah actually, it's exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, we're, we're the same. <laughs> but I'm not a Rajri. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, but I, there, this is part of the shell of understanding, and this is obviously in English, and it has its own... Um, boundaries uh, and its own containers that are pretty problematic. But within that, I'd always say trans non-binary. Yeah. Thanks. And Jinghua, would you like to? Yeah, um, I would probably uh, most reach for the word gender fluid. Hmm. Um, I would also consider myself trans and non-binary. Um, but I think I like the word gender fluid for the movement, you know, it implies. Um, and that uh, not necessarily being, I guess, an absence of gender, but the presence of movement um, and fluidity. So, yeah, and I also, I guess in a Chinese context, would um, identify as a T sometimes, depending on who's around, um, which is a, a kind of uh, somewhere between butch, trans kind of identity, I suppose, um, that's also... Uh, 
I guess it's, it's a sexual orientation as well as a gender identity for the most part. Mm. Thanks. And Amal? Uh, for myself, I juggle between the two cultural identities. Uh, first and foremost, I pay respect to my own uh, Pacifica indigenous identity of Fafafine, which is a layered term. Um, it's not necessarily uh, one way of uh, it's a Western, it's a non-Western acronym um, that we des describe people that sit within the rainbow context. Um, so I, I identify as Fafafine, proud Fafafine, but if I'm looking at the uh, English context, uh, trans woman, and I'm fine with both, uh, just having to look at negotiating between the two whenever put into a situation. So Fafafine, I'm proud of, um, and also trans woman. Thank you. Now, our job for today is to imagine a world beyond the gender binary. But before we go there, I sort of want to go back a step and ask, why are we doing that? Why is the gender binary a problem in the first place and something we might want to move beyond? Um, Sandy, would you like to tackle that at first? Yeah, look, there's a reason why I'm working on the colonial yeah. <laughs> gender as a, uh, you know, as a concern, and it's this idea of containers. So I like the term queer too, because it's a great big bundle of everything. Um, but it's also, it can be, a big bundle of another container, mm. just like non-binary or... And one of the reasons why I use the term, and I'm going back to terms just to, to tap into some of the issues with these ideas of containers, is that, you know, non-binary suggests very specific, it's very specific language in English to suggest that you are outside of that binary, that the binary is rejected within that space. And not everybody feels that way who's non-binary at all, you know, so people will use these terms interchangeably, and I recognise that, but for me, I, you know, if I'm going to use English, then I want to make sure that I'm using it very didactically mm. um, because it recognises the problem of the container. But, you know, to sort of answer the question more broadly, the colonial project is about putting everyone into boxes. Yeah. Um, it's everyone. It starts, obviously, with the colonised, but it just radiates out from there so that people can't be anything other than the binary or haven't been able to be. And now we're finding ways to start to talk about it more broadly. People have been outside of the binary for eons um, and people have done this work for forever. And there is a very good case for that. But a lot of the work that I do is looking at, um, at museums, looking at these keeping places that continue to frame the idea that we know the past by our knowledge of the now. And it frames this idea of the past as the gender binary. Um, and that gets recast onto Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here, Indigenous people around the world, and within that space of colonisation to the extent that it means that everything else is erased. Um, but we're not erased, we're still here. Mm. I really want to um, explore that element of history a bit more in a moment, but Amal, you've also written about how 
the gender binary is really tied to colonialism. Um, you did a great interview with Archer magazine a few years ago where you said that uh, binaries are such a colonial way of thinking. I mean, do you tend to agree with Sandy that yes. the big problem with the gender binary is because it's an instrument of colonisation? Yeah, it's, I find it's, it can be problematic going into Western settings uh, where my identity, I'm having to constantly, um, you know, just go, no, it's, we're not uh, one or two, we're three or four or five in between. And that fluidity and trying to explain that fluidity uh, and be respectful of my own culture, uh, first and foremost, um, that this is an identity that actually I feel comfortable with. Um, it's affirming. Um, you know, when I say that, it's, you know, I'm, I seem to be stuck in a, in a world that challenges my own traditional identity, uh, being Samoan. Uh, the Fafafini identity is a lot more affirming cultural-wise, whereas my trans woman experience in a Western setting is a lot more challenging. So when we look at these set, um, you know, female, male, um, it's, it can be quite problematic long-term because um, it's having to kind of, you know, mentally, it gets kind of quite draining to kind of explain, but also to um, reaffirm ourselves as, as a trans person uh, in terms of my own identity and to pay respects to that. So, um, yeah, just this thing of male, female, uh, for a lot of uh, probably indigenous uh, Pacific races is quite challenging. And the fact that we have to kind of um, face up to it in the Western context is quite mind boggling because with my own culture, we tend to keep things quite simple and we probably do the reverse of what a, per what, um, what a Western person, would, what their approach would be in terms of how they would deal with this, uh, say, non-binary or the, these other genders that sit within the fluid, fluidity spectrum. I like that idea that fluid, fluidity is actually just keeping things simple. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we have to complicate things with a binary? Um, and Jinghua, what's your perspective on this? Why, in your words, why do you think the gender binary is something we might want to move beyond? Uh, yeah, I, th I mean, I think that it's, you know, it's repressive, yeah. right? It's repressive and, and often violent. Um, it's a form of social control. It has origins in needing to assign people roles and relationships and that, that um, they're not only categories, but those categories always exist in hierarchy. I guess my experience of that is not only... Um, uh, I guess in terms of sort of the colonial history of that um, across so much of Asia, um, you know, really directly seeing, for instance, how Section 377, you know, in the British Penal Code um, is this, you know, has had this, like, long legacy of social control in all of these places, um, like... Malaysia and Hong Kong and India and wherever else. Um, but then also in, you know, Chinese patriarchy, um, I guess that binary is, uh, is always hierarchical. Um, so I think that the, the, the binary and the sexism and the, um, the sexual repression and all of those things are just really entangled, yeah. basically. 
And do you think, I mean, is this a problem for, it's obviously a problem for trans people like us, people who live outside the binary, but is it a problem for cis people as well, cisgender people? Do they suffer under the binary? Oh, well? of course. Yeah. I mean, there's a really interesting problem that's happening at the moment where there's been a rise of discussion, important rise of discussion about violence against women. Mm. Um, and of course, it's actually about gendered violence. Mm. And, you know, in the violence against women, women are named in that as though women are somehow complicit in this space. And actually the gendered violence is somebody else's exerting it. Um, and maybe it's, I guess, occasionally other people, but it's largely men. Um, and there is a major problem with not naming this as gendered, as gendered violence. Of course, it's a massive problem for non-binary people because actually we fall away in that space and are not, there is no you know, place for us in that. Um, but the fact that it, that it operates that way, it just produces a lot of problems and it's being reinforced constantly. Um, so it comes down to really simple stuff when it comes to community support. That's where do you go if something happens to you? Do you go to a shelter? Um, do you turn up there and go, uh, this is my gender, how can you help me? Um, it, it's a major issue. Mm. But it's one that is really hard to take on when we've got a system that in this state, for instance, uh, you know, there is no potential for really locating yourself outside of the gender binary in a lot of the formal processes. The state that I live in, Queensland, is the same. Um, and, you know, until that gets solved, until we have a census that, I know you can ask about census, <laughs> but, you know, until we have a census that actually finds out how many people do identify out of the binary, we have no idea. Mm. And it's a nonsense to try and push this. But anecdotally, we know that there are many people. Um, and I think that's one of the answers to this issue of, you know, wh what does it mean to move beyond the binary? Uh, we exist beyond the binary. That's what it means. I yep. mean, we're actually, we actually live there. So it's... Uh, and we're part of families that are within the binary. We're part of families that have to work out how to support us, mm. have to work out how to... Um, how to understand the challenges that we have, but also the kind of joy of being somebody who sits outside of the binary. And, I mean, the thing about the colonial project is that it is fundamentally about um, reproduction or stopping reproduction. And, you know, so the over-interest in binary genders is absolutely about reproduction. And there is nothing more, you know, I argue all the time about people not sexing people like chickens, but it's the same thing. You know, it's this idea that you belong here or you belong here and keep separate. And then all of you that are in this category are alike in some way, and all of you who are in this category are alike. And that's a nonsense. It's a nonsense with bodies. It's a nonsense with affect. It's a nonsense with how we are in the world. And we know it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so limiting. And Jinghua, I, I read an essay you wrote a few years ago for the Feminist Writers Festival where you said that probably gender is a prison for cis... I think, yeah, you said probably binary gender is a prison for cis people as well. Is that still how you think about it? Do you still think cis people suffer under this regime as well as trans? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when we say cis people, like a lot of cis people are going to be trans. Exactly. Right? <laughs> like people who are cis now yeah, yeah. always stay cis forever. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, 
yeah, but I think even for people who are absolutely comfortable um, as either men or women and that's what they were assigned at birth and they don't have um, any discomfort around um, that label um, or that collective or being seen as, you know, um, I think there's, there's still, first, I question how many people have no discomfort with that, yeah. right? How many women, cis women, have no discomfort with what a woman is? Because that, that is a, a social role that, um, that has constraints, um, even if you are comfortable, you know, with womanhood as an, as an overall container. Um, but I think, uh, especially, you know, when we're talking about things like sexual violence or gendered violence or other kinds of injustice, um, policing, whatever it is, um, you know, I think that the the uh, the way that the gender binary is enforced hurts everyone. It definitely, I think, you know, has really material impacts on, say, cis men who are victims of sexual violence, you know, and the way that that's talked about and the way that that um, is understood or neglected more often. Thanks. Um, now let's turn to thinking about what a world beyond the binary would actually look like. I think sometimes people, when they are first exposed to this idea, they kind of they find it quite confronting and assume it might mean, you know, eradicating men and women or making everyone trans, <laughs> which, you know, maybe wouldn't be a bad thing, but, um, <laughs> but we know it's not that. Tell um, me more. <laughs> the trans agenda takes over <laughs> the world. Um, I really like the definition offered by um, Alok, who many of you might have heard of as a New York-based trans poet who said recently that ending the gender binary, quote, means stopping policing other people's genders. It's just a world without gender policing. And I I'm, I'm, can definitely get on board with that idea, but I wanted to ask each of you how you understand a world beyond the gender binary. Amal, did you have any thoughts you wanted to share? Did you want to start with somebody else? Then? Okay. Oh, yeah, I had I had a piece written about me recently in Breitbart, um, and <laughs> that would have been fun. <laughs> it wasn't, but um, they gendered me he he all the way through, um, which was interesting. Mm. Uh, but it was also, you know, one of the one of the things is that it allowed me because usually when people misgender me, they misgender mm. me with she rather than he. Good old Breitbart. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a lot of what was uh, happening in this was um, this idea that um, that gender needed to be contained. Mm. If it wasn't contained, something terrible would happen. Um, something... So, actually, what they said was, this professor, he's decided that... Um, he's going to just tell his students to... Um, that he's going to use they-them for students if mm. they don't tell him what they're... Pro sorry, I'm finding really hard to misgender. <laughs> um, if, if they, you know, so yeah. effectively it was this whole notion of the, you know, of this locked down, you're not going to believe this, but this professor is going to say they, them, about human beings. Um, you as know, if we don't all do as that. As if we all don't do that, that's yeah. right. And they hadn't thought it through. But what I saw in that moment was a glimpse of the fear mm. of what happens if I can't just look at someone and tell what happens in that instance? And it's kind of, we've always gotten it wrong. 
you know, we've always gotten it wrong. We've always been wrong. Um, this isn't something that just happened. You know, this is something that's been going on forever. But the idea of the policing it hasn't. And so I guess in terms of, you know, what a, what a future could look like or what the world could mm. look like in that space, I think what it does is does more than breaking down the barriers. I think it says the barriers are toxic. They're toxic for a reason. Um, and we all have to take on that we do it. I do it all the time. I don't mean to. I think I'm one of the people who shouldn't be doing it all the time, but I do it all the time when I'm looking at people. What happens when you start to look at people differently is that you're no longer trying to do that. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is you see the complexity of people. Um, we're all incredibly complex. We start to see representation differently. Have you ever seen yourself represented on screen? Somebody who's exactly like you, this is some of the work I do, is looking at that. What would it mean for us to actually not be thinking about gender in that way? And there are some risks. One big risk, a big risk, is that there would be less representation of women. It's absolutely a big risk that we have to understand. We have to talk about it. Um, and that's part of the, you know, the, the language of this not just being easy, mm. but something that we do have to you know, work towards. Yeah. Jinghua or Amal, did you want to jump in with your thoughts on what, yeah. Um, I was just thinking about what you yeah. just said, Sandy, about the, the, the fear and the sort of the fear and defensiveness that some people have when it comes to trans people and um, all of these issues. And it's, it's so ironic that um, those same people want to maintain, you know, that, that uh, the gender binary is natural. And, you know, if it were so natural, you wouldn't have to <laughs> police it so damn violently, <laughs> would you? Um, it would just be there. But um, uh, I've slightly lost the thread of your original question, actually. What, uh, we just, what, what would the world be on the gender binary look like? What would that mean? Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I think for me, it wouldn't be the abolition of gender. Mm. I think that having gender identities floating about in the world as, you know, words people can use and ways they can relate to each other can also be a source of pleasure for people, a source of connection. Um, I'm not necessarily trying to, like, delete that, you know, entire category of thought from the universe. Um, I think of it as, I guess, the dissolution of... Um, yeah, I, I suppose the structure that's holding um, all these things in place and holding them in hierarchy. So uh, I think of it as a form of justice, I guess. Yeah. 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 I think for myself, it'd be, um, it'd actually be quite refreshing the fact that we wouldn't have to be set in these mindsets or, you know, make things complicated for what they are already are. Um, I think, you know, just you know, whenever or if it ever happens, um, this dispersing of the gender binaries, um, you know, looking at the, the experiences and like aiming at the, the traumatic experiences that trans and gender diverse communities go through, um, you know, like having to explain ourselves in say medical situations, um, those are just, um, huge things to look at if we're looking at the bigger picture or if we're looking at, um, you know, just in the future, just trying to look at go, well, 
we don't have to have this gendered talk around anymore because it's it seems the norm. Okay, you identify as this. Okay, that's okay. Um, I think for me, through my uh, evolving as a Mao, through my life experience, it's this this thing of my safe, my safety, mm. and. Um, you know, the binary thing seems to challenge that and be so complex for myself that I sometimes am always having to be on guard. Mm -hmm. And so that's looking at the future if we're trying to eradicate or kind of just blend in and just make this, um, you know, the binary thing doesn't, uh, the, the, the conversations of gender no longer needing to have a conversation and trying to make it as normal as possible. Um, but that's the thing that's always in the back of my mind is my safety mm. because I've encountered um, horrific, traumatic stuff from not so nice people and the aim has always been you happen to be uh, trans. You know, why should we as the trans community have to constantly fight that? So when coming back to your question, you know, it would be great when we get to that point where we this it's just normal, like mm -hmm. you're just part of the furniture. I don't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> A very glamorous part of the furniture. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to um, ask also about, I suppose, parenting, um, because we know that the gender binary is originally enforced, I suppose, when we're all born, and, you know, we're assigned agenda that's kind of based on, you know, assumptions drawn from our perceived biological sex. And it kind of all flows on from there. But, you know, there is another way that um, Sandy gestured towards of when you don't know your student's gender, that you refer to them as they, them. And some people are already parenting in this way. I know that they're, you know, they're assigning their newborn children they, them pronouns and you know, waiting until that child is old enough to tell the world what their gender is before we start giving them a gender. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that approach. Is this, is this really the coalface of challenging the gender binary, this kind of parenting work, or...? I, I think one of the indications that it is, is in 2019, the Catholic Church, um, in their education arm, brought out a document that all Catholic education should be using that challenges queerness in general, uh, LGBTIQ plus people, specifically talks about the gender binary and reminds people that there is only a gender binary. It also talks about kinship um, in the way that we might imagine it as Aboriginal people, but actually also in the way that many people around the world imagine kinship and says that it's a nonsense. It effectively says there is a a pathway that looks a lot like your stock standard family tree, but is extremely linear in approach. And it is fascinating because part of what it does is it, it suggests that, um, that there's a risk from parents. Um, and there's a risk from parents who are clearly opening up the possibilities. Mm. Um, because the only time that you start to get this resistance, I mean, they talk about transgender people not existing. Now, I mean, the Catholic Church has 15 saints who have been canonised on the basis of their transness. They're not mentioned in this 
appalling document, appallingly written document apart from anything else, filled with inconsistencies. <laughs> it's a really hilarious read. It talks about IVF. It says it shouldn't happen. It's very specific. People aren't talking about this. This is 2019 this came out. People are talking about how the new pope, or the new pope, the current pope, is um, incredibly progressive. Have a read of this. Mm. Um, and again, it's there challenging. And the same t reason the Breitbart piece comes out mm. or anything is happening that is about this conservative, don't change it, it can't recognise that this isn't about change. This is about people who've always been mm. there having complexity in the way that they support kids in the case of this, this is mm. Catholic ed, um, and that their worlds are made better by it um, and they're coming up with these narrow edicts. So, yeah. And uh, Jinghua Omao, do you, what are your thoughts on, I suppose, you know, children and transparenting? Is this where we need to kind of put our energies in creating a kind of beyond the binary future to enable people to have the freedom to choose their own gender as young people? Yeah, I, I personally, I don't think it necessarily matters whether you, oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a parent, so I feel a bit weird. I don't really like to comment on yeah. like other people's parenting. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I think that if you allow your child to express who they are, um, whether or not they sort of maybe start off with a gender, but then are free to, reassess it themselves. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. So I don't think I have a... It's weird because so much of this is about terminologies. And again, yeah. It's yeah. yeah. You know, it's this notion that the container has to be right. And if it's yeah. not right, people would be messed up. Actually, mm. that is part of the problem, is this notion that the words have to be correct. And mm. if the words aren't mm -hmm. correct... And I'm not arguing that people shouldn't have a right to describe themselves, but that yeah. notion of of having to force this or that mm. onto kids, you know, who can grow into it, yeah. is really, again, I think why that document that I was talking about, you know, is there. It's an it's a, it's the notes, it's the, the life notes to say, don't do that because mm. all bad things will happen if you do that, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I like the thought of just trying to encourage uh, children just to have that you you know in this world that we live in um you can have a choice you can either mm. this way or this way um and just try and inform and educate our children as best as possible pros and cons as we do as parents as uh, extended family members um so my thought on that is um having been in a partnership with somebody and having had children my one was just to um, allow you know, give that space for them to also make mistakes and say oh you know there's a choice a b c but i just like this thing of just giving children choice and um giving them you know as as we like as adults or parents um the opportunities mm. so, mm. Yeah. yeah we're going to go to questions in a few minutes um but I wanted to ask about the role of the arts in kind of imagining new worlds and creating new possibilities. I mean, you are all amongst your many things you do. You're all performing artists, you're all storytellers. And, you know, we know that in many spheres of life that poetry, that performance art, that dance, theatre can be a space where we imagine the world differently. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how 
we can, that can help us in this work of moving beyond the gender binary. So I, I work in the Centre for Global Indigenous Futures, mm. and one of the reasons why we're called Indigenous Futures is because we're all Indigenous people. Actually, there's eight of us who work in the department that I work in, um, Indigenous Studies. Half of us are non-binary. Um, <laughs> and and that's, uh, that makes all the sense in the world, uh, and it centres the challenge that we have in our centre, Global Indigenous Futures. And again, that idea of future making is actually something that the arts does brilliantly because it must. You know, it can consider the past, but it has to kind of imagine a future each time something is being made. And it's one of the reasons why I was, you know, in moving from arts into museums, social history museums, and then back into arts again um, in my work, it was really interesting to kind of look at the museum that's all about describing the past and narrowing the gaze, mm. like amazingly narrowing it. So, so I've sort of written, but mostly been just been interested in figures like Venus of Willendorf. Now, there's absolutely nothing that tells us that Venus of Willendorf is a woman. There's nothing. This is a 30,000-year-old object um, that is an Ice Age art um, object, a really beautifully crafted piece that is almost always imagined as uh, a maternal figure. But I can tell you that they don't know that Venus of Willendorf is a woman, and I'll tell you why they don't know. I look like Venus of Willendorf, and I'm not a woman. <laughs> And that sort of essentially mm. makes me ask questions of curators. What decisions are you making? What contemporary decisions, actually, are you making around these, these binaries and these ideas? Um, and I think as artists, we can make a future. Mm. Um, as Indigenous people, we can make a future. As Indigenous artists, we can absolutely make a future, is kind of my argument within that space. We can start to open up possibilities, and we can also start to remember the past quite differently. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, I think that representation in the arts and in, you know, uh, entertainment and everything is so important for, um, especially, I guess, I think seeing that, you know, oh, all of these different people exist and these are the stories that they tell about themselves and, um, and just that, that simplicity of being like, oh, maybe there is a, maybe I would survive and thrive and be able to create, um, even if, even if, you know, these things in my life changed, um, or whatever it was, I, I started teaching recently and, um, yeah, realizing that I, um, am probably for a lot of my students, the first, you know, trans teacher they've had, the first Chinese lecturer they've had, you know, whatever else. Um, I think that sometimes I am a little bit cynical about what representation does, but that's been a really amazing experience for just being like, oh, you're meeting a trans person possibly for the first time in a context that's not some kind of trauma um, or a new story about, you know, some kind of violence or injustice, but they're like here to teach you podcasting. Um, <laughs> so that's quite cool. Um, but I also think it's really important for me at least, to think about representation not only in like 
um, here is a thing that exists and this is another category that you can mm -hmm. be, I guess, you know, like I don't, um, personally I'm not interested in just like the, the proliferation of like more and more identities and categories as like more and more examples because I think that, um, there's always a risk with everything, you know, in, in queerness and in whatever else that you then just kind of create more archetypes um, and more containers. Um, and, you know, we already kind of see that with a lot of trans narratives that you get this sense of there being like one way to be trans and a correct way and mm -hmm. everyone should relate to it like this. Um, so I think there is that danger there as well and I really want, um, to think about representation in the arts as being something that can um, allow the viewer to question their own perspective and argue their own perspective rather than be, I guess, just an example of like a visibility that you can then also come and occupy, you know? So yeah, I think that's a challenge um, yeah. for, for everything, not just for gender. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just going on the, the thought of challenge, uh, I think it's a great thing to challenge just things in general. Um, you know, for myself, it's, you know, challenging these colloquial views that have been, I've been taught in schools, I've been taught in institutions um, that have wanted me to be set in a certain way. Um, so using performance art with what I do as well, um, I'd like to say, uh, interweaving or weaving uh, culturally that's a that's a therapeutic thing for myself that's a affirming thing for myself in terms of trying to weave these narratives or my experiences into my stories or to challenge you know what a, what is the mindset of a certain group of people who have said no you need to do it this way and I said no I'm coming it from a Samoan from a person from the Pacific diaspora view which is actually a lot more a lot of the times is a lot more safer and a lot more affirming for myself so um, when I look at the performing art stuff especially for myself and where I come from um, I like to look at it as challenging, challenging what's already out there so that we don't have, you know, so we're not set on this view of the one way or like how we've been talking gender binaries that say, no, there's different ways of viewing it. My way is not the only way or my way may not be the correct way. So when I look at the performance um, art in that respect, being able to challenge people's views, being able to challenge people's minds, and being you know being able to challenge you know our colloquial views that have always set us in this mindset or this uh, uh, sometimes problematic you know way you know that we can't get things wrong because you know it's it's not supposed to be that way. Even within my culture as well, like I, you know, I've spoken about how affirming, but this also can be quite challenging uh, for someone fafafine and within our own cultural dynamics. You know, we're affirmed, you know, we're affirmed from our, uh, our ex-prime minister. However, there's still a lot of work to be seen as we're more than church decorators and, you know, entertainers. But I think being able to challenge uh, challenge whatever's out there, uh, to challenge views as how best we can use uh, performance, art, performance art being from, you know, identifying as trans. Thank you.
Now, I have about 20,000 more questions for you three, <laughs> but um, unfortunately, um, we need to turn to audience questions now. And fortunately, the audience have been sending in some brilliant questions. The first one I'm going to throw out to all three of you is, how do we deconstruct to be beyond the gender binary while still being allies to our trans friends who choose to identify within the binary? Oh, by just doing that. I mean, it's the same as being, <laughs> as, as being supportive of cis people because there's no difference between trans and cis people. Hmm. Uh, you know, trans woman is a woman, trans man is a man. So it operates the same way, I think. And I think, you know, we have to... Um, follow that line. I mean, again, we don't have to. Um, but to do that is to honour the idea of the, of the binary, which really helps a lot of people mm. in understanding who they are, you know, which really supports that. But I think, you know, I think there is a problem with loading it up with expectations as well for cis or trans people. Yeah. Yeah, so if we think of moving beyond the gender binary as just going beyond gender policing, then people yeah. can still be yeah. binary gendered. They yeah, just, yeah, yeah. it's not, you know, yes. it's just we don't have to be binary yeah, gendered. Precisely. Did you, did you hire Amal? Did you want to add to that answer? No. no. Okay. <laughs> um, then, ooh. Next. <laughs> <laughs> the questions are jumping around because they're being upvoted as well. Um, this is a good one. How do we get binary feminists to stop fighting transness? <laughs> <laughs> it was going to come up. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I think, I think part of it's by talking about the impact. Mm. Um, you know, like, people surely don't want to be cruel to others. And I think it's understanding that there's no loss. This isn't yeah. a zero-sum game. And it's worrying when people treat it like that, you know, um, this idea that somehow it takes away from... Um, a gender binary that you, one exists outside of it is just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, it really doesn't. But I, I think by greater visibility is a part of it. Um, you know, the work that I've been doing on challenging symbolic annihilation in the arts is looking at where we're present, mm. actually, and, um, and we're increasingly present, which is we're great. We're present so right here. We're present right here <laughs> yeah. in front of you. Did you two have anything to add? Sorry, could you say the question again? Oh, um, it's disappeared from my screen, but I think it was how can we get um, uh, binary feminists from stop, you know, being opposed to trans people? Yeah, I think that um, feminism isn't... Like, I think that TERFs have, you know... <laughs> really mobilised. Did you um, say the turf word? I said the turf <laughs> word. Um, They're gender critical. It's a turfy slur. <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, transphobic elements um, have really mobilised to... Uh, make it seem like they're, they not only like dominate feminism presently, but that historically they're really fundamental to it, um, when I don't think that's the case. Um, and they've been really successful in, in uh, promoting that agenda. Um, but I don't think that that's a... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's something that um, is true. I don't think that there is an inherent tension there, and I think, uh, for the most part, a lot of feminism has 
actually been involved in dismantling the gender binary. Like that's actually what feminists have been doing. Um, and they've been trans women and other trans people involved in that project for a long time. And I think there's a lot of histories of feminism, depending on where you start, in what culture, at what point in time, what the focus is, where, um, you know, that has already been the case for, you know, decades or centuries um, or longer that, you know, feminism is engaged in the project of justice and that that involves, you know, looking at things like violence, gendered violence, um, that involves looking at policing, at economic justice, um, and trans people aren't sort of a new addition to that or a complication to that. They're just, you know, another um, demographic, I suppose, within... Um, that conversation. Um, but I think that, yeah, if, if feminists, uh, you know, really look at, I guess, what the fundamental ethics are of their feminism, like what are you really for? What are you trying to do in the world? Um, if you really bring it back to that and not some of the structures that maybe were always supposed to be temporary, um, then it, it's, it's pretty clear, I think, that there's not a contradiction there. Yeah. Amal, how do you understand the relationship between your transness and um, feminism? I'm fine with what they've... I think. Yeah, they've, they've covered the territory. Um, this is another good one. How do you think the English language has to evolve to describe beyond binary experiences? I th I, can I start there? Yeah. I think, it, like, just as anything, education is so key and important. Um, like, just encouraging the language that, uh, just being trying to be a lot more open and quite universal in, in the usage of language. And so just educating, like, educating young people. Um, you know, when I talk to queer young people, you know, we have our own indigenous terms from across the globe that we use. Two-spirited, fafafine, mahu. You know, just encouraging that language, uh, especially within, you know, educate uh, some of these institutions and education places, um, because we have, you know, we have people from different cultures going into these places. Um, so just being able to create, encourage that language, you know, constantly um, encourage it, but also that visibility as well. I know for some of uh, my people of colour or background cultured, um, you know, sometimes the visibility, they've had to be a lot more careful because of it, it may cause them harm. Um, but yeah, just en encouraging it in the education sense, that in terms of being open to language and also teaching your fellow uh, companions or your children, you know, there are, there's more, there's, there's actually all these other amazing and other interesting um, facets of people's cultural identity and where they come from and encouraging that language and also um, I think where it counts a lot of times is in these policies and procedures that we have, or legal documents, um, you know, having stuff that adheres or addresses the needs of people from uh, diverse backgrounds, mm -hmm. cultural backgrounds. 
I think affirmation is a really interesting word in that mm. context as well because I've, I've really loved the <coughs> affirmation has become used rather than transition for a lot of people because, you know, there's been also this kind of thinking of that last question, there's been this kind of negativity <coughs> around the idea of detransition, but actually the affirmation is just affirmation, there's no de-affirmation. Mm. Different yeah. affirmation. And affirmation is something that applies to everyone's gender all the time. You know, it's actually part of what happens in, you know, in, in gender. Mm. And, it's a, and it's a nice space. So understanding some of those available English language words is really important. I, I think, you know, there's also that risk around trying to find difference. You know, people do it all the time and approach us as a, as a team, um, as Aboriginal scholars, who are non-binary to say, tell us your words, you mm -hmm. know. Actually, when you erase <laughs> a culture, when you set out to erase a culture and we grab hold of everything that we can and retain everything that we can, some of those things um, leave us, are taken from us, actually. Leave sounds a little bit like we were sloppy with it. They took it. Yeah. And, you know, so the notion of what that is and how it manifests can be re rebuilt by us, but actually not for others. They don't get to just use our terms. They don't get to just think, oh, because this was true here, it means it's true for me too. So I think there's risks too around this. You know, the, the, the risk is that it can be a romanticisation mm. of other cultures in that way. It's different than, you know, exactly what you're talking about, which is that idea that we, we, we go into ourselves and actually understand how um, we have always been here. You know, we have always been here. You know that actor that you loved from the 1930s? They might have been trans. You don't know that they weren't, actually. Sometimes you have some good evidence, but actually often you don't. You know, and these ideas of who's within the binary and outside the binary are even more confounding in that way. So I think words are a helpful anchor for it. Um, but I think we have to look at the words that we're already using in English as well and understand what we're trying to do with that. Okay. We've probably got time for one last question, um, which is probably a nice note to end on this one. What practical ways can we help to break down the strong tendency in Western culture to put people into categories? I'm, I'm, I'm 55, about to turn 56, and I have to say that um, one of the things that happens in terms of, uh, one of the things that I've observed is as I've gotten older, people want to transform me into more of whatever they think my gender is going to be. It's like a consolidation. It's like an affirmation that somebody else is managing, you know, and it's this incredibly problematic space. So part of it, I think, is, as we were talking about before, opening up mm. and saying, let's not make these judgments. I hear all the time that people talk about, oh, there's all these young non-binary people, and I think, you know, <laughs> yes, but also think about what that means. You know, think about what it means to kind of pitch people in that way. And I think there, you know, there are some mechanisms that we can deploy to, um, to, to make that happen more, but we're never going to do it until everyone in this room and beyond demands statistics. The ABS still doesn't know any of this. They won't 
gather statistics on us. The United Kingdom, the coloniser, will have this material in the next few months because in 2021 they asked these questions. We don't. We won't. Um, <laughs> Are we out of time, or how, what, what is happening time-wise? Um, Thirty seconds. I'll give you like, really quickly. Really I quickly. Think, you know, as just a practical thing, like you can make sure that every space that you're in, every organisation you work for or interact with, makes it possible for trans people to exist and non-binary people to exist. You know, that you have, for instance, those options on forms that you are uh, like. I had to had this whole thing flying here for this event um, where I couldn't get a non-gendered title because I'm not a professor or Just doctor. Just become a professor. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I refuse to be one of those non-binary people who gets a PhD just to not have a gendered title. I'm also not very good at school. Um, but, yeah, but, you know, neither Qantas nor Virgin allowed... Um, either no title or MX and you know it's really not the most important thing in the world to me but it's just like such a tiny thing where I was like this is so ridiculous and funny that I cannot do this to come here for this event <laughs> um, but then I noticed that at the airport for instance there's now like quite a lot more um, unisex toilets um, that have that are also accessible and there are parenting facilities that are not gendered and you know just little things like that that are um, actually really simple to do. Um, Thank you. Yeah, in any organisation. <laughs> Maori, do you want to give your 30 seconds of practical things we can do to stop putting people in categories? Uh, yeah, just just encourage the, 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 the dialogue, but also uh, for us where it's important is these procedures, you know, these legal binding um, procedures and policies that we have in organisational spaces. So we need to feel safe mm -hmm. and we want you as allies, as community to, to act, you know, help us action some of these things that will safeguard us in terms of looking at what my panellists have just discussed in terms of language, in terms of forms, in terms of data, you know, especially as a trans woman of colour, you know, when things happen to us, there's not a lot of data out there. So how do we explain that when uh, we go for to access services, you know, and being able to access those services mm. without, you know, having this headache of having to explain you know, um, in my own cultural terms, what I am or who I am. So, um, yeah, just encouraging language, but actual action uh, and actual um, changing up these policies and procedures that are legal binding, um, that are actually um, for also my own trans and gender diverse uh, siblings as well to make us safe in those spaces. Thank you. Well, that's unfortunately all we have time for today, and we've clearly only just scratched the surface of so many complex and really exciting issues. Please join me in thanking our extraordinary panel of Sandy, Jinkar, and Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.